tonight. If you will, open up your copy of God's Word. We'll be looking at our final week of a different spirit today. A different spirit looking at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, finishing out this thought here that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has given us. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Over the past three weeks, we've looked at ten different aspects of this different spirit that I believe the Lord gives to us through salvation. And ten aspects of this spirit that we need to continue to nurture and allow the Lord to grow us in week after week, day after day. First week, we looked at how we needed to have a converted spirit, a dependent spirit, and a humble spirit. And I believe in those first steps toward Christ, I believe those three are vital. Obviously, a converted spirit. He says, you must turn. New King James says, be converted. And become like little children. Become dependent. And humble yourselves is what it says also. Second week, we looked at three other characteristics or aspects of that different spirit. We looked at being receptive, a receptive spirit. Receive these little ones in my name is what it said. Protective, willing to do what you've got to do to keep them safe. And then sacrificial, a sacrificial spirit. So we've covered a converted, dependent, humble, receptive, protective, and sacrificial spirit. Last week, we looked at four aspects of this different spirit. We looked at the cherishing spirit, how we should cherish these little ones, how we should have a missional spirit. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. That is the missional spirit we all should have. A compassionate spirit is something we should all have, and a joyful spirit. We should celebrate when that one comes back home. Celebrate. And have a joyful spirit. So as we have walked through the varying aspects of the different spirit over the past three weeks. These aspects are heavy toward the inner man. Then how that motivates the young believer and the older believer into their interaction. Today we'll look into two more aspects of the different spirit. Now these two aspects are in context of the church. And how these aspects can lead to the health of the church. Or the hindrance of the church. This is where the Lord speaks directly to the health of the church. This is very early in the life of the church as well. It's one of the first things Christ ever said regarding a healthy church and how to handle things within the church. We know the health of the church is vitally important as it is the bride of Christ. I believe from this scripture today, we can see Jesus calling us to a restoring spirit and a cooperative spirit. A restoring spirit and a cooperative spirit. If you have your copy of God's Word, take that and read along with me. If you would like to stand and you're able, please do. If not, that's okay. But I'm going to encourage you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Scripture reads as this, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. 
Verse 17, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he or she refuses even to hear the church, let this person be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, you, excuse me, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Verse 19, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Let's pray, church. Father, we ask today that you will work and move in lives. Thank you for the reading of your word. Thank you for your word. Now may your Son, through the Holy Spirit, do what needs to be done for salvation, for repentance, for to call to missional living. God, may we uh, example, exemplify these things in our lives. Lord, change us into being more like you. God, thank you for the grace that you've given. Lord, use this word to edify your church, convict the sinner, and lead us into the work of the kingdom here in our communities and in our lives. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And you may be seated. So today as we begin, this, this text today has a lot of scripture that I believe many of them have been used incorrectly. Now in the first set of verses, a restoring spirit, I believe it's been used quite accurately. Unfortunately, it's just not been applied very much. These first set of verses, verses 15 through 18, we see them, people talk about how we need to do this all the time, but how many apply it? Well, we're going to look at that today. And in so many places, as I have read through so many commentaries, they, they lead to a negative thought pattern on confrontation. So many people think, oh, it's a negative thing, you shouldn't confront people. I want to tell you something, it's a weak and immature believer thing to do not to confront people. Confrontation is healthy. The thing is, is in what spirit do you come? Do you come in a restoring spirit toward confrontation? Many people come with confrontation with their feelings on their shoulders and their desires in their hearts. But if we will come to confrontation with the heart and the hope of restoration, as Christ comes to us, as he comes to the lost person, as he comes to the young believer, to the mature believer, if the goal, if we will, when we come to people for a restorative spirit within us, I believe we'll see a lot of things change in a church. We'll see a lot of things change in individual relationships. If we will come to confrontation with a hope and desire of restoration, not, not for, for uh, destruction, not for my way over your way, but for restoration. And I fully believe that's the whole point of this. We've got to always view things through the lens of the Scripture as a whole. Not as how we want to just nitpick certain parts out and go, this is what it means to me. That's a dangerous phrase. I've heard people say, even in Sunday school trainings, you need to ask people, what does this verse mean to you? What, what does the verse mean in context? What does the verse mean in the Word? Because I could take one verse and make it mean a whole lot of stuff to me. 
and fit my agenda and my will and my hopes. Don't you do that. Don't do that. We need to read it in context. God is still talking to these. Jesus Christ is still speaking to these disciples about how to navigate young believers. How to navigate a relationship with a young believer. Remember, he's still got the little child sitting before him, right? Nowhere in the text so far that we have looked as Jesus said, Okay, little man, I'm done with you. Thank you. It's saddled back to the side, has he? That's nowhere in the text. Nowhere says that. He's still using this little child in, in an understanding of that young believer before the eyes of the disciples. And it all stems from this issue of pride. And if we recall, pride is what caused absolutely the first initial sin. It might not be the first earthly sin, Adam and Eve sinned, but when Satan fell, it was in pride. And I believe pride is the root of all sin. Pride is the root of all sin because it says, my way over God's way. That's what pride says. So when we look at this, We've got to understand, we've got to set our pride aside for the desire of having a restoring spirit. And I believe that confrontation is healthy, as I said, as long as it is in the spirit of restoration. When confrontation isn't healthy, it's usually because of pride and immaturity. I've had people over the years, even recently, confront me about things in a healthy way, in a mature way. And I was gracious and, and thankful that they came and spoke to me. And, and I, I have more respect for that. And hopefully you'll have more respect for individuals that will do that as well. And I was very thankful for that. And the whole goal was for restoration. William Barclay, through these scriptures, he gives us some steps. He gives us a good scheme of action, if you want to use that language, uh, Directly, He gives us a good scheme of action directly from the text to use in guiding toward restoration if someone has wronged us. Because that's what he starts off with in verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, some translation says if they have wronged you. If they have sinned against you or wronged you. His, this is what Barclay says in, in so many words. Firstly, if we feel someone has wronged us. We should immediately put our complaint into words. The worst thing that we can do about a wrong is brood about it. Brood about it. That will be fatal. It can also poison the mind and the life until we think of nothing more than revenge. So you need to write it down. Write it down. Think it out. Don't just let your feelings Rule your lips and your tongue. James talks about how the tongue is set on fire from hell. Listen, don't just start spouting things out. Think it through. I've always heard it said, and I try my best to do this. I don't always do it. Sometimes feelings lead the way, and I'm, I'm hoping God is maturing me along the way. But usually in even every criticism that someone receives, there's one little bit of something that you can take from that that might be truth. So if you'll just be wise and think about what that person's saying to you. Don't just, ooh, build up this big wall. I'm going to build up. I'm going to roar. I'm going to holler back at you. Trust me, that's what I've liked to do all my life. But the Lord has said, Blake, chill out. Calm down. 
This person probably has the best for you, but you're still young, you're still learning. And you may say, you're not young. Some of you say, I'm real young. (laughs) Some of you may still say, I'm young, but I'm not in my 20s anymore. In my 20s, I would fully expect me to act like someone who had not really gotten things under control. But being married for 24 years and being 45 years old, you learn a lot. You learn a lot. And if you've been married, you understand. There's a lot of times you've got to learn. This is not the time for that. Healthy confrontation comes. We, need to be, we, don't, need to let our, we don't need to let our feelings and our emotions rule our tongue and rule our mouths and, and let it pour out. Think about it. Hold it in. Uh, we should uh, put our complaint into words. Secondly, if we feel someone has wronged us, we should go see him or her personally. Personally. More trouble has been caused by the writing of a letter than almost anything else. Barclay says, I would, well, actually, I wrote this. Uh, I would add also modern thought to that as well, not just writing a letter, but that as well as a text, an email, or a direct message. There's been more problems caused by that. A letter or these others may be misread and misunderstood. It may quite unconsciously convey a tone it was never meant to convey. We were in a small group breakout yesterday at the Fortify Conference that we took our young men to. And one thing they said in that temptation, in that temptation thing, was talking about how young people today are struggling to be able to read facial expression and understand tone because they're so engaged in devices. Guys, this is the reason why personal interaction is important. It's the reason why face-to-face communication, you can hear inflection and tone and, and feeling. You can read it in their face, but you can't read that in a text message. You read your emotions into a text message. You read how you feel from an email. You read all those things, and you feel, and I feel, because I've done it. And you, you, can, you can make things feel how you want them to feel when you read things. So we need to be mindful about These aspects, we need to make sure that we are going personally. Write the complaint down first. Secondly, go to the individual one-on-one. Don't need to be bringing in a whole host of folks. Social media has has lent to subtweeting and and all this other kind of stuff like that where you're, you're not really directly speaking to the individual, but you know who you're speaking to when you send that message. You know what I mean? I made this post about so-and-so, people need to do this. When you're talking about one specific person, right? Okay, maybe you don't do that. Maybe you've been more mature in your life than I have. I've done that before. It's been a long time, but I've done that. It's been a long time because the Lord convicted me of it. I said, I ain't going to do that no more. If I need to talk to somebody, I'll talk to them myself. I'm big enough. I'm mature enough now that, that I know how to control myself. Wished I was still a little better. I've not attained, but I've gotten better. I'll say that. Thirdly, if a private and personal meeting fails of its purpose, we should take, now listen, this is who we should take. Take some wise person or persons with us. Don't take a yes man with you or a yes woman. Don't take your best buddy that's got your back. No matter what, I got your back. You know, I see people post something on, on social media. And then like the person made me, has no idea of the whole situation. I got your back, girl. Come on. Let's ride. Let's go and ride. Let's ride together. Come on now. Come on. 
I mean, I've seen that happen. I've seen that happen. Be careful. Be careful. I mean, we don't even know the situation a lot of times. So we need to be careful. Deuteronomy 19.15 says it this way. A single witness shall not prevail against a man or woman for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be sustained. So take somebody who's wise. Take somebody who's wise. Don't just get your, your buddy that's going to back you because you know what? You might be a little bit wrong too. I've been there. I've been a little bit wrong, been a little bit right. Maybe not handled it rightly, so I went and got somebody that I thought, they're going to back me up. I'm going to tell them just what they need to hear. Not everything. Have you ever done that? Not told them everything. But you told them a little bit about it, and then you're like, I want them to, come on now. I mean, seriously. I mean, gosh, I guess I'm just up here confessing. It's like I'm up here on the, on the trial stand, okay? Anyway, we've all been there. Fourthly, if that still fails, what do we do? We must take our personal troubles to the Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship. Now, remember, this is still within the church. This is an issue in the church now, guys. This isn't just your lost friend out there that you got some conflict with. This is within the church. This is how you handle things within the church. Church health, church discipline is how you handle it. If that still fails, we take our personal troubles to the Christian fellowship. Why? Because troubles are never settled by going to lawyers and the court or by Christless argument. It is in an atmosphere of Christian prayer, Christian love, and Christian fellowship that personal relationships might be righted. If there's an issue in the church, you need to bring it. Not, I mean, it don't have to go for the whole church. But you might want to bring it before some folks that, that can have godly wisdom input into the situation. Because the worst thing that can happen is divisiveness within the church and then destroy the reputation of the church within a community. And how often does that happen? A lot. Way too often. Because what happens is somebody gets hurt, somebody says something, somebody sins against another, and instead of taking it back in and dealing with it, either personally face-to-face, -face, personally with a, with a couple of people that are wise and can look at the situation as a whole, not from one person alone's perspective, but from the whole, you take them. If they still don't see it, you take it to a, the church family. You take it there, and you deal with it with Christian love, Christian uh, fellowship and Christian prayer, you deal with it there, then you can handle it. But so many times people will just dip. They'll just, they'll just dip, step out, and not deal with any of it. And then you leave the church. You leave people in a place where they now you've got questions swirling everywhere as to what's going on. Whereas if it would have been handled in the way Jesus Christ lays out for it to be handled, then if someone is still not satisfied with how things are handled, people can leave at least in a restorative, in a cooperative way. All right, we just don't see eye to eye to this. Okay, we can't come, but we're not going. We're going to agree not to talk bad about one another when we leave here. We've tried to work through it. We just have differences of opinion. We have difference of perspective. Okay, we've asked we've asked for forgiveness within these meetings. We can't get it resolved, but yet, you know, I understand that. Then, then they can leave, and there shouldn't be any ill will toward either group because every effort has been made in Christian love, Christian prayer, and Christian fellowship. And that's the effort that should be done. Fifthly, this, this is where things get, get really hard. Fifthly, 
It is now we come to the difficult part. Matthew says that if even uh, he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And this is to regard him as someone who is pre-salvation because of that person's unwillingness to repent and humbly submit to the discipline of the church. Treat him as a heathen and a tax collector. This way, church membership is important. And it's regarded as wise. It's important to have church membership. If someone does not become a part of a local church, how are we to hold accountable someone who chooses to ignore the biblical steps of restoration? They'll just leave. You know, the goal, the goal is not to hurt anybody. It's to restore them. Just as Jesus said, the goal is to restore. The individual can just disappear and have no regard to their impact on the family, on the church family. Think about it in this way. If in your family someone just chose to disregard their responsibilities and abandon their tasks, it puts an unnecessary burden on those remaining. Church health has to stand through healthy confrontation and compassion. Remember the first spirit, the first aspects of the different spirit we're to have? We're supposed to have a compassionate spirit. Showing pity on those that are young believers is what we're supposed to do. Church health has to stand through healthy confrontation and compassion. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, the scripture says this, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. The goal is restoration. The goal is restoration. We should desire to see people restored who have either fallen into sin, caused another one to sin, or whatever it may be. The goal is restoration. Church health is vital to the foundation of the church where it is and where it is trying to go. Church health is predicated on individual believers' spiritual health. That is why discipleship and maturity in faith is so important. It's so important for you and I to be growing in our faith so that if instances such as these where the effort of restoration has to take place, we're mature enough to say, I'm willing to receive that personal one-on-one talk. I'm mature enough to say, I can, we can handle it right there. Snuff it out. Nip it in the bud if you're Barney Five. You're going to finish it up right there at the beginning. It's not going to linger. It's not going to brood. There's not going to be this, this uh, leaven that gets into the loaf and messes everything up. It's going to be de- dealt with in a healthy manner at the first instead of letting it just curate and get like, cancerous and bitter and brood. You deal with it. Now, specifically to verse 15, I'd like to point out, I believe the Lord desires a church that is willing to hear one another and listen to one another and be willing to humbly work together a goal of unity and cooperation. There in verse 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained a brother. And we cannot move past the context or for our students who I've been, uh, I've used this word on Wednesdays, the hermeneutic, excuse me, of the text, 
where Jesus is speaking to maturing disciples about how to avoid pride and treat the immature believer. We cannot move past that context. We're trying to deal with how to mature disciples and to avoid pride and treat the immature believer. Will the immature believer make poor decisions and even at times in their ignorance cause ecclesiastical issues? That's a big word for church problems. <laughs> well, sometimes that young believer do that? Yeah, that's going to happen. Sometimes even the mature believer causes that problem too. But remember, we're still looking at the young new believer. Can that cause problems? Yes, they potentially can. Any of us can if we let pride get in the way. Any of us can cause problems in the church if we let pride get in our way. My way over the church's way. My way over God's way, more importantly than even the whole church's way. We've got to humbly submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ and let him lead our lives. When this occurs, the mature believer must take steps I outlined a moment ago for wisdom and restoration. In that first personal face-to-face communication, the hope is for restoration without any more people being brought into the issue and in so doing, gaining a brother or sister. It's so important that if we can just handle that one-on-one, if we can just handle that one-on-one, you don't have to bring anybody else into it because you know when you start bringing more people into it, there's eventually going to be more ears into it. So it's a whole lot better if that person has another issue with that other person, sit down and talk about it. Try to deal with it. Try to resolve it. Try to restore the relationship from it. It's so important to try to do that. Galatians 6.1 that I quoted a moment ago, it gives more support for the effort of restoration. It says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person. The goal is restoration, not excommunication. The goal is restoration. Not excommunication. I believe a lot of churches have gone about this kind of issue wrong in the effort really just to squash somebody, to make them look bad, to remove them. Sometimes people have just a differing view, and you have to deal with it and talk it out one-on-one with a small group, with the church, however it may be. And Sometimes if you don't agree, sometimes it's best just to go separate ways. But you resolve to say, we're, we're resolved to go separate ways, and we're not going to have ill will. We're not going to talk bad about nobody. We're not going to do that. We're going to be mature believers in Christ, and the hope and the goal is restoration. Now, specifically to verse 16, I'd like to address the idea that this particular statement is found in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 19.15, which I quoted earlier. There, verse 16, it says, But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. That that, uh, by the mouth, the beginning there in that phrase, that comes out of Deuteronomy 19.15. In most situations, the less amount of people to be involved personally, the less the amount of people to hear it audibly. Right? The less amount of people that's in a situation, the less amount of people that's going to hear it audibly. It's important to deal with it. David Platt wrote this. These believers that go along should be believers who go along with you to try to talk to this person who has sinned against you. These believers that go along should be believers who are gentle, humble, loving, and willing to go with you to speak to the unrepentant brother or or sister. They need to have that characteristic about them. Gentle, humble, loving. And willing. And I would say they don't need to be just in your back pocket, for lack of better terms. 
They need to be someone who can hear both sides and speak for a goal of restoration or compromise. Sometimes it can be that whatever that issue is cannot be compromised. It can be a true sin to where it's got to be addressed, repented of, hopefully forgiven, and then restoration comes. But sometimes people just are absolutely diehard set on my way or the highway, and they're sinning against people, and you just say, and you work through the proper steps as we've walked through earlier. I'm not going back through all that. And you just have to say, that's just how it is. In relationships from time to time, there will be challenges. Everybody in here has probably been in some form of relationship. Everybody has been in some form of relationship. And you know there will be challenges. There will be conflict. There will be quarrels. There will be those things. But we must suppress our desire for our way so that we may achieve unity, fellowship, and restoration. Moving from verse 16 to verse 17. In verse 17... We read it, it it says this. It says, and if he refuses, he or she, just using that masculine phrase there, and if he or she refuses to hear this, the, the group that has come to speak to them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Obviously, if the issue is too large, the person in conflict's attitude or ego is too prideful, the compelling of the church may be requested and required. It may be requested and required. We need, and when we read this scripture, when we read through Matthew chapter 18, we need to feel the tone behind what Jesus is saying here. We've got to hear the tone of what Jesus is saying here. We're tempted to think, why tell a whole group of people about this brother or sister and his or her sin? In reality, however, the entire church is saying together, we love you and we want you to come back to Christ. The smaller, more private efforts have been made and the person is not listening. Some people uh, may ask regarding the statement, let him be like a heathen or a tax collector. Why should we view this individual as a lost person? Some may ask, isn't the church supposed to be welcoming? Isn't the church supposed to be welcoming? Well, though it may be difficult, church discipline is what Jesus calls us to do. A point we see played out in the early church. For example, 1 Corinthians 5. Paul instructed the Corinthians to remove a man from the assembly for gross sexual immorality. Again, the goal in church discipline and restoration is that people will see their sin and return to Christ so that sin will not spread further like leaven. It's not the goal just to come down crashing on somebody like a mighty wave. The goal of church discipline is to say, we all love you. We've already tried to do this privately. We've already tried to do this in a small setting, but yet you're not seeing it. You're not listening. But that's the reason why churches and church health and church membership and church discipline It's not exercised anymore because people don't want authority or accountability in their lives. And we don't come in the name of Blake. I have no authority. We don't come in the name of New Prospect. We come in the name of Christ, the most compassionate model of these characteristics that we've ever seen. 
His whole goal, I've talked to the students this morning a little bit about it. God's whole goal in coming to earth was to restore a relationship between man and God to reconcile that what that what was divided by the dividing wall of hostility and to break down that wall so that there could be a peace and a healthy relationship so that we could be restored back and have that right walk with God. But so many people, they, they just got their feelings on their sleeves. And they want to say, you're just trying to make me look bad. You're trying to hurt me. You're trying to destroy my reputation. No, no, no. We tried, we tried to do that privately first. That individual that came to me or came to the other deacons or came to the whomever it may be, their small group, even your Sunday school class helps in that to, to keep it small so that there can be a small group that loves you through whatever sin it may be that's entangling you. But pride keeps us from that. Pride keeps us from that. All of us. We're all susceptible to the sin of pride. And the ultimate goal of any of this restorative effort is for the glory of God in the body of Christ. That's the ultimate goal. Now verse 18 Verse 18 is normally, it's often taken out of context. It's often taken out of context. People want to give some kind of spiritual power unto each believer that I can shackle something or free something in and of myself. You know, look at verse 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth you will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, like, like we've got some kind of Jesus authority and power in our own words. We find this statement also found in Matthew 16, 19 and John 20. And the rabbis used this phrase also. It was a principal phrase used by the rabbis. The rabbis said it had to do with the binding and the loosening that had to do with sin. If someone repented, they were loosed from their sin. But if they would not repent, they were bound in their sin. When we confront a sinner and a sinner will not repent... And we say, you're bound in your sin. Heaven has already made that judgment. That's not us. That's, heaven's already made that judgment. Or when we confront a sinner and the sinner repents, and we say, you're loose from your sins because we have biblical revelation that says, when you repent, you'll be loose from your sins. We are only saying what heaven has already said. Christ is saying that what we do as a church in his name with his authority is a reflection of what he does in heaven. So if someone comes to the church and says, I'm living in sin and I am, an unrepent and I am unrepentant, I will not turn to Christ. Now, listen, it's very unlikely someone would be so bold to accuse or condemn themselves in such a manner, right? Most people ain't going to come and say that, okay? But if they were... If they were to come and say, I am living in sin and I am unrepentant, I will not turn to Christ. Then we can say to that person with authority, you are living bound in sin and your sin is not forgiven. To be clear, their sin is not unforgiven because we say so. Their sin is unforgiven because Christ has said so in his word. Similarly, if someone says they are willing to turn from their sin, then we can say to them with full confidence that their sin is forgiven. And they are now free from it 
Jesus has given us the privilege of proclaiming what he has said is true. If someone comes and says, I repent of my sins, I believe Jesus Christ is Lord of all, I I submit my life to him. Amen, brother, your sins are forgiven. You know how we say that? Because the Bible says so. The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raises up from the dead, you shall be saved. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9 that if you will confess your sins unto him, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. All we're doing is telling you the truth of God's word when you say, I repent of my sins. Yes, amen, brother. Praise God. Praise God. Lastly, the cooperative spirit. Verses 19 and 20. It says, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever done a, a school project with a, with a group of other students? Any of y'all ever done that? Yeah, yeah. You know what it is. You know, it's so difficult if the people team together are not those who are already friends, Right? Now you got to get phone numbers. You got to coordinate. You got to meet somewhere. You got to work together. You got to you got to designate who's doing what. It's hard to do anything in a cooperative team effort sometimes if they're not already your friends. Team projects are difficult, right? But what are they not? Impossible. Team projects are difficult, but they're not impossible. So, when, But when we see impossible, this is what happens in our minds. When we see things that are impossible, we begin to doubt the team. We doubt the giver of the assignment, and we begin to question the validity of the goal of the assignment. That's what happens. This, I don't even see what good this is. I don't see why we got to do this. This isn't important. So now you're doubting the teacher, the one who's given you the responsibility to accomplish the task. There is a purpose to it. Number one, it's team building. Number two, it's research and development. Number three, it could be writing something. It might be improving your writing skills. It's also improving your communication skills. There's so many things that are good about a team effort. But we will doubt that. We'll doubt the team. We'll doubt the giver of the assignment, and we'll begin to question the validity of the goal. Scripturally, our goal is to make Jesus known through our lives, our church, in our families, our communities, and our world. The mission is difficult, but what? It's what? What is it? It's not impossible. It's not impossible. It's difficult, don't get me wrong. But when we take our eyes off of Christ, we begin to doubt the church, that's the group. We begin to doubt the Lord, that's the giver of the assignment. And we begin to doubt the purpose in the mission. That's what we do when we take our eyes off Christ. God wants us to have a cooperative spirit. <laughs> this text is still Still within the context of Jesus dealing with the disciples on their pride and how to minister to the immature, pitiful young believers I talked about last week. God is speaking not in a way that our will be done, but rather that in cooperation within the Spirit, God's will be done, and that is ultimately our will also. Yes, you see, our will as individuals should match up to that of Jesus. God will give to us as we ask if our requests are of the will of God. One passage of Scripture that I've heard misused and abused ever since I have been in church. God will give you, God will grant you the desires of your heart. I'm sure some of y'all have heard that. Maybe you even have it stitched on a pillow somewhere in your house. 
(laughs) That's sort of true. It is true, but it's true within context of the Scripture of which it's cherry-picked from. The whole passage of that Scripture reads like this. It's Psalm 37, 3 and 4. This passage of Scripture reads like this. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Do you hear all those stipulations prior to God giving you the desires of your heart? There's a lot of stipulations to it, okay? Trust in the Lord. you got to trust in Him. You need to be doing good. You need to dwell in the land. It's talking about His land, not the land that you so choose. It's His land. Dwell in His land. Feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. Take joy in it. And he shall give you the desires of your heart. So when we're doing that, the desires of our heart, if pursuing Christ should be unified, so in our cooperative request, they should be God's will on earth as it is in heaven. If we all believers were living a Psalm 37, 3 and 4 life, then when we pray and ask God to do something, as that scripture says, uh, it says in 19, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. A lot of people want to say, well, let's get together and ask for a car. Let's get together and ask for a new house. Look, I'm not Creflo Dollar, and I'm not Joyce Meyer. I'm not up here telling you prosperity gospel. I'm up here telling you about Jesus. Jesus says if it's his will and if we're searching the Lord through Psalm 37 as it says we should be, then we're going to find out what God's going to give to us. We have got to be people that are Psalm 37, 3 and 4 believers. And that will be the desire of our heart is to trust them, to do good, to dwell where he says to dwell, to feed on his faithfulness, to delight in him, not in what we want, not in ourselves, not in our achievements, but in him. And then God, when we come together as believers and we say, God, we really want to see young people come to faith. We really want to see our children's ministry grow. We want to see our senior adult ministry grow. We want to see this grow and that grow. We want to see it. You know why? Because we've been dwelling in his land. We've been trusting the Lord. We've been doing good. We've been been delighting in him. And God says, amen, I'm giving it to you. And it's not because, it's not because I'm so prideful. It's because I've humbled myself before the mighty hand of God. It's like our scripture in Sunday school said, to humble yourself to the point that your lips are in the dust, laying down, prostrate before the Lord. And he's maybe, maybe, maybe he'll show us mercy. We've got to humble ourselves before the Lord. Now, verse 20, we're wrapping up here. Verse 20. It says there, verse 20, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Oh, here's another fun one that people don't understand. Here's another one. Oh, goodness, we can't have church until two or three of us are gathered together in his name. Let me ask you something. Does Jesus reside in your heart through the Holy Spirit? Has he sealed you to the day of redemption by his Holy Spirit? Is he with you all the time? Does the Bible not say he will never leave you nor forsake you? It does. So you ain't got to wait for somebody to come up in the house. If you're in your prayer closet, oh, Lord, Jesus ain't going to meet with me today. Shucks. I ain't got a second or third person to be with me. That's not biblical, is it? No, 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 it's not. No, it's not. You can't take 
You can't take Scripture out of context. You can't take Scripture out of context. The Lord is present with every single person who has called upon Him as Lord and Savior. He's present with you. David Platt gives some clarity to this passage. He said, think about when you were in your prayer closet alone today. Does that mean Jesus was waiting for someone else to show up before he came into the picture? No, definitely not. Jesus is not saying, once you've got two or three together, count me in. Instead, in this context, he's talking about the difficult work of church discipline when two or three believers are gathered to address a brother or sister in unrepentant sin. When we do the tough work of gentle, loving confrontation, we can be assured that Christ's presence is always with us. We'll be especially real and strong in the middle of that situation. This should give us great confidence. You can't divorce a passage of Scripture from the context. You can't take that out. The entire passage that, that we're looking at today is about error and sin, whether from pride as initiated from the apostles or from wrongdoing from one believer to the other. When people are restored, reconciled, and repurposed, they can see Christ's work in their gatherings due to their accountability and discipline. So when you read this, I hope that you read this now with new eyes. You see that where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there also. That's very much talking about how to deal with the church to keep it healthy. It's not just about, now granted, there's many of us in here today. Is the Lord present? I do believe so, yes. But the Lord is also present when you're reading your Bible by yourself, by your bedside, by your prayer closet, wherever it may be that you have your personal quiet time. The Lord doesn't say, I'm not there. The Lord is with you all the time. So, when you, when you cherry-pick that out, you're going to get confused. But I want you to understand, put it right back into the context of which it sets so that you can understand, so that I can understand. I've learned a lot in studying this passage of Scripture over the past week or so. And, and it's been very eye-opening to me because that's the way I've always heard it. But then at the same time, I've always known the Lord is with me. My Lord is near me all the time. My Lord is near me all the time. I know that. So why would I have to have this verse to affirm to me something that's not accurate in context? He's with me. He's with you, if you know him as your Lord and Savior. So in conclusion today, as we look at this, do these two characteristics, are they evidenced in your life? When you have conflict with somebody, and, and we will, each one of us has conflict from time to time. It might be in the workplace. It might be in the family. It might be in the church. But when you have conflict, do you have a restoring spirit? Is your hope and desire to restore the relationship, to restore the individual? Or is it just to say, eh, psh, I'm done with them and not give any effort to it? That's not a spirit of Christ. If Jesus had, just think if Jesus had that spirit. After Adam and Eve sinned, he was like, Psh, go build another planet. I can speak it into existence just as quick as I did this one. I can make a whole new human race. I can do whatever I want to do. But God said, no, I've got a plan. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He bled and died to buy my pardon. That's what he came to do. An empty grave is there to prove I know my Savior lives. He's come to restore us. 
And we are to live as those who have been restored by Jesus. And then we are to cooperate and serve together for the glory of God and the good of his bride, the church.